Hello, I'm Tim Marlowe, Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts, and this event was part of the Festival of Ideas, an inspiring lineup of talks and debates with innovators from across the arts, brought to you from the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening. My name is... Oh! <laughs> I was going to... We're going to do a big reveal, but he slightly revealed himself. So, um, my name is Sarah Crompton, and I'm very, very pleased to welcome you to the second RA Festival of Ideas. Um, and I'm even happier that I am sitting to talk to Kwame Kwe-Arma. Um, I always think that if you were a fan of the BBC series Casualty, you wouldn't have thought um, that the charismatic young actor who was playing paramedic Finlay Newton um, would have ended up being the most high-profile and most significant person of colour running a British theatre and uh, being such a powerful advocate for culture that is inclusive and welcoming to all. But that's exactly what Kwame has done. Um, He's an award-winning playwright whose first play, Elmina's Kitchen, was the first by a black British writer to be seen in a major West End theatre. That was in 2004. Since then, he's built a fascinatingly rich career as a director and as a writer, with productions such as One Night in Miami and Ibsen's Lady from the Sea as a director. He's written two more plays, Fix Up and Statement of Regret, run a major US art centre, and last year he returned to Britain to to run the Young Vic. A lot of people were very, very happy to have him back, and I'm very happy that he's here with me to talk about it all this evening. Kwame, that appointment as artistic director of the Young Vic made the front pages, and there aren't very many appointments of artistic directors in British theatres that that happens to. How did you feel when you saw that and you saw the excitement of your return? Totally and utterly spooked. (laughs) I was really frightened. I was actually at the Donmar Warehouse um, uh, that, that, that morning. And I'd been used to getting up, going to the newsagents, getting my papers. And, um, and the, the guys who run the newsagents just, you know, they would go, hi. And I'd give them, you know, my money and get my papers and off I'd go. And that morning, I didn't know, of course, that he made the front page of the Guardian. And I walked in and they kind of looked at me slightly strangely and then looked down at the pile of papers to their, and, then, and then kind of <laughs> smiled. And then I kind of looked and I went, oh my God, it's me. And, <laughs> and kind, of, kind of about turned and, and ran out. Um, I, it, was, it was, I mean, it, very um, humbling. But also it was quite frightening because actually that, that morning, um, I, I think I truly understood the significance of there not having been someone of my hue running a major theatre before and the weight of expectation, and I didn't know what that expectation would be, mm. um, but just the weight of it um, kind of hit me quite hard. And is it difficult for you? Because I think 
um, Indu, who runs the uh, Rubaiasing, who runs the um, tricycle, says that if you are a person of colour in charge of a theatre, people expect you to represent not just yourself and your own tastes, but all diverse tastes from everywhere. I mean, how, how do you cope with that? Um, I think my mother, who's my role model, um, taught me, um, I think relatively young, she taught me that um, the burden of responsibility is one that you should just not even worry about. Um, I, I worry far more about the burden of paranoia. The, right. the, the burden of what do they want of me? Am I, am, am I satisfying? Am, am I, I, I think that um, became the thing that I had to doctor. I had to make sure that I knew um, and that I know that you cannot please all of the people all of the time. That you simply have to, um, with your own truth, serve through your art and hope that you, um, and hope that that service is appreciated whether you succeed or you fail. Did you hesitate at all before taking it on or did you want to come back? No, I, I didn't hesitate. Um, I, um, uh, rather dodgily actually, I was in, in the runnings for three gigs, two in the United States and one here. And this was the last interview and, and two had offered and I'd kind of said, look, I've got one other thing I'm investigating and let me, um, and let me see. And the moment that I got the call which said they want it to be you, I automatically said yes, without <laughs> even thinking about any of the other, the other gigs. Um, and, and in part, it was that I, I did want to come home. In part, it was because the, the chairman of, of the Young Vic said to me in a pre-interview, he said, you know, the thing that we want as the board is that this theatre remains socially relevant. And as soon as he said those words, I went, I know how to serve. I know how, and I know how to do it. And third was my daughter, who's now 23, who, um, I, and, and she's, she's a rather brilliant young woman, and so I was laying out all of the options in front of her of the, of the jobs that might possibly come my way. Um, and, um, and, and one of the jobs is very well paid. And, um, and, and so I laid that out in front of her. Desperate to know what it was now. No, I won't say. But, um, <laughs> and again, it was in America. And, uh, and she said, yeah, yeah, that, that well-paid job is really good. And I'd love it because it means you can pay for so many holidays a year. Um, <laughs> but it would mean that you left the country when I was 17 and you never returned. Mm. Um, and yes, we see each other all of the time. And yes but there's no way you're not gonna do this other job for at least 10 years. And then who knows? And you're just gonna stay in the States. Mm -hmm. And I think that really touched my heart. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to come home and I wanted my children to know that um, I wanted to be as close to them geographically as humanly possible. Right. And did you, I know that when you started, you, you succeed someone who has been hugely successful yes. in, the, in, in David Lanner. And I know that when you started, you did, you were very tentative. I remember your first press conference and you were quite sort of, well, you, you were very humble, but you were also quite, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm doing here. Yeah. How did you cope with that? How did you begin to step into the space and say, this is my, very my theater? <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, um, actually, there was a really good lesson for me for life, actually. Um, I, Normally, or not normally, or in a lot of theatres, you kind of have a transition of about a year, um, or maybe seven months or, or so. 
Um, I got the job in, let's say, September. I'm going to say the middle of September. By the third, second week of October, I got a call from David saying, so what's your season? And I was like, what? I, I, I haven't even thought about where I'm going to live when I come home. Um, I, I haven't begun to think about a season yet because the, the organization was based in a way that it planned a year out. And so that made me really quite nervous. And, 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 and I juxtaposed that against the notion of what do people want from me? I know that I'm going to represent Mr. Diversity to some way, in some way. And, um, and I, I, I didn't quite know what to do. So I made a really bad mistake. And I went out and I booked three shows that I felt would appease David's audience. And I went, they'll trust me then. They'll see that I'm just doing what David did. And, um, and then on my first day at work, which was February the 1st, I, I sat in David's chair and, uh, and I looked at the staff who were beautiful and welcomed me um, so wonderfully. But David had left the night before and I could still see the tears in their oh, eyes. Gosh. I could still, you know, I could, and, and he'd been there 18 years and he'd employed all of them. So of course, and, as I, and I felt magnificently lonely as I looked around thinking, what am I doing here? And how can I do anything here? And I went home that night, I spoke to my wife and, um, and when I woke that morning, I went, you can only be you. If you win or if you fail, just be you. And so I had to call those three artists and say, I'm really sorry, I'm going to stand you down mm. because um, I was casting for David, not for me. And luckily those artists were really understanding. It was painful, but it was really understanding. And then, and then I began to, to, to just create a season and seasons that spoke to my sensibility. So if I asked you, what would you say those sensibilities were? What do you hope the theatre will become under your guidance? I, I think it's a really hard question to answer. <clears throat> I, I think if we all are born with our own superpowers, I believe, every being in the world. And, uh, and I think my superpower, um, if I can call it that, um, uh, is that I really like to listen. And so my first year is, is about listening. It's about hearing what, um, what the artists who come into the building, what they say about the building, hearing what the artists in the sector, what they want of me, of the theatre, of the future, um, listening to whether my choice of plays um, are, are, are right or being received in the right or wrong way. And so, though I have actually uh, created a vision document for what I think the theatre should be, I mean, truth, I'm still in deep listening mode. Mm. Um, but what I do know is um, there, are, there are a few things that are very important to me. The first is access. That, that everyone, no matter their social class, can feel that the theatre that, that, that I am at the helm of is one that they can walk into and feel at home. The other is gender parity. I am my mother's child. Um, and, and, and I was saying this to someone the other day. I, 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 I didn't become um, interested in gender politics because of Me Too or because it was a new fad. Maybe uh, five years ago, seven years ago now, at Baltimore, we did some, some tests and, um, and we realized that 70% of our tickets were being bought by women, but yet less than 10% of the work on stages were being made by women mm -hmm. or of women. And so we rather quietly 
just switched that around to 70% of the work. And we never went below 50% of the work. And we didn't talk about it either. We just did it. Um, and, I, and part of the reason why that was so important to me is because, um, you know, I, I, I saw my mother struggle with the limitations of being a woman in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. You know, it was up until the, in the 70s, you had to have your husband sign for your, for your driving license. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and, and I, I feel as a father, as a husband, and as a mother, that gender parity in a field that is dominated by women and bought mainly by women, that um, it's really important that I support that. And I think the only other thing I would say is, is part of my vision is to serve the next generation of artists and bump them onto our main stages. Right. So legacy, gender parity, and access are the things that are at the center of my philosophy. So it's interesting in terms of the newspaper coverage and so on and, you know, the excitement that in that list you don't directly mention race and, and the idea of people involving uh, a more diverse audience. Do you think that will come with the other things? I mean, it's... It's, it's so interesting, Sarah, because for me, um, I am diverse. <laughs> and so therefore I don't think about it um, like a fish you know, swimming, when does this fish wake up? I mean, guess what, I'm in water. I, I just, I, I, I am diverse. And so therefore, and, and because I perceive myself and being born in a country that is warmer now than it was when I was born in terms of race relations, I find myself um, naturally thinking outside of the box in that respect. I find myself naturally having to define myself as tricultural, African, Caribbean, and British, or Grenadian, um, Ghanaian, and, and, and London. And, 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 and it's great when it's the World Cup. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and so naturally, I find myself not having to actively um, create a box that is diversity. I, I, I think about it naturally. However, what I would say is, I walk into every building that I run, and one of the first things I do is to look around and say, does it look like my home? Or as diverse as my home? Does it look like the city that I'm in? And um, when I walked into Baltimore, I was the only person at, at senior management or middle management. In fact, there was only two other people of color working in the building in a city that was 60% African-American. And by the time I left, we were at like 40%. We didn't, I didn't go out to say, hey, I want people of color to come and work here. But they saw, I hope, excellence. They saw innovation. And then they saw someone who looked like them getting a job done. And actually, people of color then went, that's the place I want to work. People who were excellent went, that's yeah. the place I want to work. When we started doing work where 70% or 50% of the work was women, it meant that the leading um, female work, um, um, artists went, oh, I should throw this idea at Kwame. Why? Because they could see it. So though I don't speak about diversity, um, it, is, it is for me, it is, it is as I, I breathe it. And so therefore it does not have to be an agenda. Yeah. With, if I take you right back to the beginning, your background is not theatrical. What got you hooked in the first place? What made you, was there a single play that you saw that suddenly made you think, wow? Two. Um, one when I was 12, and another when I was 23. My then girlfriend, who went on to be my first wife, I don't mean first wife in that I have several, I mean that I've been, <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I mean that, that I have been divorced and I am married to my second wife currently. Um, and actually, um, I, I, I blame August Wilson actually for my first marriage because she took me to see Joe Turner's Come and Gone okay. at the tricycle, what was then called the Tricycle Theatre. And I stared at, at, at the stage and I, and I saw that here was a man, August Wilson, who could not compromise his identity or trade in his identity or his truth for success. He was someone who could chronicle, and for those who know or do not know, he wrote um, 10 plays. He chronicled the African-American experience um, of the 20th century. And I saw this play and I saw this truth and I went, well, if you're going to bring me to this play, I'm going to have to marry you. <laughs> and um, and, and all, that play changed my life. And then in retrospect, I think there was another play that is really, um, that really helped form the kind of theatre that I like. And I was 12 or 13, I think, and um, a lecturer at my older sister's, older sister's uh, college took them to Stratford-upon-Avon. And, um, and, he, and, and, you know, like the kind of buggy child that I was, I said, can I go? And they brought me along. And, um, and I sat in the auditorium, and I don't know, five minutes before the show began, someone stood up, and they started screaming and shouting. And remember, I'm like 12, I'm not going to, what's, what's happening? And then, and then that person ran onto the stage and jumped on the stage and then the ushers ran from the side and the ushers jumped on this person and he was screaming and he was shouting and then he, he ripped down the curtain and there was someone on a motorbike. And actually I later discovered it was a really famous Taming of the Shrew yeah. with John there. And I remember sitting there going, what the hell is this? <laughs> and going through all of the fear of, we have traveled all the way from London to see this play, mm. and, and, and it's not gonna happen. And it meant that I, as an 11 or 12 year old, however old I was at the time, that the visceralness of that experience um, went right into my core. Mm. And so I say that those two plays, right. the plays that made me think, eventually, I think theater is the thing for me. And it, what is it about it that you love? I mean, you know, what is it that... Because you do other things. Do, you, you've yeah. done film. Yeah. Um, you've done, uh, you know, films about the Windrush generation for the BBC. Mm. You do other things, but what's the thing that pulls you back to the theatre as a place to explore ideas? I think a couple of things. I think um, that nearly every bo black box that I walk into, wherever I am in the world, from the moment I walk into that space, I forget where I am in the world and I feel at home. And I think that's a real sign that, that, that I still love it, that it still thrills me. I, I, I think that theatre also was the place where I, um, I was first introduced to, to it as a, as a forum, as a crucible for ideas. The state of the nation play, which says, tell me about the land that I'm living in from your lens, is one of the most brilliant manifestations of theater. That I can walk in wherever I am in the world and trust that there is a playwright creating work that is trying to tell me, to shake me, to say, look at the world that I'm living in. We do not just have to exist within the narrow bandwidth of entertainment. We are here to be part of the fourth estate. And that, I think, and many other genres do that. But sometimes those genres have to push against themselves and have to push against economic imperatives sometimes right. to do that. 
and theatre says, no, this is who I am. Mm. And so I think that's why primarily my art happens um, within the space of, 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 of theatre. And how did you end up being an actor? How did you become an actor? Because your mum wanted you to be a lawyer. Didn't yeah, she? that's right. Yeah. So yeah. how did that go wrong? Uh, uh, probably my exams. <laughs> no, um, uh, I, I, I think that um, that I became an actor because really before that I was a singer songwriter. Right. Okay. And um, and I and and at about twenty about twenty five ish, I um, I realised that the dream that I had which is to be this kind of Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye-esque. And I use them not to say that I'm of their, always of their talent, but the way that they would use their intellect and their politics in, um, in their music, that, that my dream of being that being was not going to happen. And, uh, and it just so happened that, 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 that someone said, you should, here's a play. And, um, and I found myself loving being in the rehearsal room. I cared far more about being in the rehearsal room than I cared about being on stage. Mm. I hated curtain calls. To this day, I've never staged a curtain call, even <laughs> as a director. I let my associate do it, or someone else do it. Um, because actually, the, the, the rough and tumble of the rehearsal room, where the minds are fighting to find characters and, and to define the, the narrative, um, that really excited me. And because I could sing, I would do new plays where I would run, and then I'd go off and do a West End musical so I could right. pay my bills. And, um, and, and, and that was a really great career. So in a kind of way, my acting became the thing, particularly with new plays, became the thing that replaced um, trying to write songs of meaning. Right. And when did you start to try and write plays? Because Elmina's Kitchen yeah. is an amazing first play. I mean, and, and sort of... Well, you know, most people came from nowhere. Just... Yeah, um, well, the, the very first play I wrote actually was a play called A Bitter Herb, and it was at, uh, on at the uh, Bristol oh. Old Vic, um, directed by, by Andy Hay. And um, how that happened was that um, I, 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 I mean, history is like a foreign land, right? They do things differently there. Now you can make a TV and it's on TV in, in, in weeks or months. But back in the day, you'd kind of, you'd make a film and it might not come out for a year and a half. And I was fortunate as an actor that I had, I had done three, um, two films and one TV, but I hadn't seen any of them back. And so I was a bit like, if I've made a mistake in film one, it's now going to be in film four and I need to think <laughs> about it a little. So I went to do an um, a, a acting for screen class at the Actors Centre. And it was really interesting because we went around the room and everybody said, so what are you doing? Oh, I haven't really worked in a while. And, you know, oh, yeah, and no, I haven't worked for five years. And it got to me and I was just like, I'm so sorry. I feel really embarrassed. I've just done three movies. But I'm here <laughs> because I really want to, I want to work on my craft. And on my way out, I ran into Andy Hay and Catherine Johnson. And Catherine Johnson, who wrote Mamma Mia. Mm. And Andy said, so what are you doing? And I said, oh, I don't know. I'm thinking of writing. And he said, what do you want to write? And I went, oh, I'm probably going to write a movie. And because at that time, I was inspired by Spike Lee and Robert Townsend. And he went, why are you going to write a movie? You know theatre. You're a theatre actor. And I went, mm. And he said, if you write a play, I'll commission it. Never want to look a gift horse in the mouth. Yeah. I, I went... Good moment. I, I, yes, good moment. <laughs> and I went, um, yes. That play, uh, A Bitter Herb, um, and, and, and forgive me, I'm going to jump forward just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, um, That play, I think, um, has saved my adult life. 
Um, I wrote that play, and it was my first play, so I'd have been, I don't know, 27, 28, possibly 30. Actually, that's a lie. It was after my twins were born. I was in my mid-30s. Um, <laughs> always trying to be younger. Um, <laughs> and, um, and Andy, when Andy gave me that commission, the first play that I wrote was about Amistad. The, the slave ship rebellion, and I did all my research, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to use all my all my cerebral activities into this." And and Andy read the play, this big fat, probably two hundred pages of blamange in front of him, and he, and he read it, and he said, um, "You're not in this play." And so I went away, and I ripped it up, and and I wrote um, a bitter herb, which was about a. Um, a West Indian family who'd moved out of the, um, the inner city into the suburbs because they had done well. And they lose uh, their first son through a racist murder. Right. And so it's kind of Stephen Lawrence inspired. And I wrote this play and, and deeply embedded in it was my mother, though it, what the lead character wasn't my mother, deeply embedded was part of my story, deeply embedded was, was, was much of my world. And we did the play. However, for me, once I've written a play, and once it's been produced, I can't even tell you the plot. I, don't, I forget it, it's gone, it's almost dead to me. Um, and, and, and so I got this call from RADA, which was two years ago, and they said they're gonna, um, they're gonna put it on. And it was the last day before I flew back to Baltimore, and um, after directing the Bob Marley musical in, in, in Birmingham. And I was quite afraid. I was afraid that I was going to meet my younger writer self and I'd see all of the holes. I'd go, oh my God, you're so bad. It was so, look at the structure that my older self would go, oh my God, and I'd just feel really embarrassed because I thought I was great, right? And I'd be like, oh God, I was terrible. And, and, um, and, and so I was quite nervous. And remember, I, don't remember, I didn't remember the yeah. plot. And, um, and so I, I, I sat and I watched this play and in it, I saw a much braver man than I am today. I saw someone who was bold. I went, did I really write that? <laughs> did I really say that? I saw, and of course I could see the structural stuff, but more importantly, the fire and the energy and the bravery to say things, to speak truth to my own power and other powers. And I, I got on the plane and I went back to Baltimore and I walked into the brand new theater that I had renovated. We had raised 30 million. And there were two new theaters. And in the main stage was a play that I'd been developing for five years in audiences. It was sold out. It was brilliant. And upstairs was a play based on Chinese mythology. And people were crowding in. And I was like, this is everything that I wanted this theater to be. And I resigned the next day. I resigned because I realized at that moment that I'd come to do what I was going to do, and that if I stayed, it would be because of cowardice, and I had just been called out the night before on my adult cowardice, the cowardice that sounds that I would sell to myself as compromise, not as compromise, as pragmatism, pragmatism that really is compromise, mm. and it changed, and so my younger self actually um, actually looked me in the eye and Tasty. said, be true to who you are. Be a true artist. And I resigned. I didn't know what job I was going to go right. to. I just went, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just, I'm going to just be. And then the Young Vic job came up, maybe yeah. three or four months later, which I call my reward. 
for being, going to the show that night. For being brave. Yeah. But so you mentioned Baltimore a few times. Yeah. What, so you went to run an, um, a big theatre in Baltimore. Yeah. What took you there in, in, in initially? Initially, they had produced two of my plays, um, uh, Elmina's Kitchen and Let There Be Love. And um, I had become an associate artist there. Uh, during Elmina's Kitchen, um, the, the, the play that, that certainly gave me so much, um, the director was a famous, brilliant director who fell ill on the last day in the rehearsal room and had to be hospitalized. And so um, the artistic director went, oh my God, I don't know who else is gonna direct it. And she said, will you? And I'd never directed for stage at that point. And I went, okay. And so I kind of took the play from the rehearsal room to the opening night. And she looked and she went, I think you can direct. You should think about directing. And so they offered me um, a piece, a, a show to direct. And so um, that was in 2007. So when she um, decided to leave, she called me and she said, you should throw your hat in the ring. And at that time, I had, I had just, I, I just got really fed up with myself of moaning all of the time. I was moaning about what artistic directors were putting in on their theatres. I was moaning about waiting for white directors to come and direct my plays and I was the cultural passenger. I was moaning about, I, and I was just moaning and I hate it. I, I'm, and, and, and I remember my mother was always like, you know what, before you, before you criticise, walk in someone else's moccasins. And, um, and so when this opportunity came up, I went, this is a moccasin opportunity. Yeah. This is a be a gatekeeper, go be that gatekeeper, go see how difficult it is, and it will stop you moaning. And, uh, and so I did 18 interviews. Right, um, oh my goodness. And, um, and, and, and then they gave me the gig. And almost immediately, I got to understand that to be produced as a playwright is a miracle. It's like, it isn't this thing that I thought, yeah, look, I've sent in my play, you should just do it. Or people yeah. send in their plays. The, the, the many um, different things that you have to, that a play has to answer to in order to be produced is beyond the playwright. Right. And, and, and so what of, kind of things? Well, um, the balance of the season. Are you curating it well enough? Are you duplicating ideas? Have you used too many actors for the season? Have you run out of money? What's the scale of the production? What does your audience want from you? Is there a leading actor that you really like that will come and play this role? Or no, actually they've chosen that play. Okay, maybe I then have to do that. But there were so many imperatives that, um, that almost within the first month, I wrote to Nick Heitner, I wrote to, um, to Nicholas Kent, I wrote to all of the artistic directors that had produced plays of mine, and I said, Thank you. <laughs> I understand the risk you took to produce my plays. Mm. Um, and a friend of mine said to me, and I say this all of the time, his father was an actor. And the one bit of advice he, he gave to his son when his son said he was going to be an actor was he said, son, there are a thousand reasons why you may not get the part. Just don't let your acting be one of them. Mm. And I feel that about writing. writing. There are a million reasons why a play may not be produced. Mm. Don't just, just don't let your writing be one of them. Are you still writing plays? I am. Mm. I am. That's good. I think it's important. I, I, I describe myself in a rather grandiose fashion to myself. 
as, um, as being a, a generative artist, an interpretive artist when I'm directing, and a curatorial when I'm being an AD. And each one um, washes the hand of the other. And there's also, there's, there's, there's a connotation in our business that, that once you can do something else, why do the thing that you're, that you're doing? So when you're an actor, it's a bit like when you become a writer, it's like, why be an actor? Oh, you don't want to do that anymore, do you? And then you kind of go, oh, no, no, I don't. And then when you're a director, they go, oh, you don't want to do writing anymore, do you? No, of course you don't, because now you're higher up the chain. And then when you become an AD, they go, oh, you don't want to do any of that anymore, do you? You just want to be a producer. And I rebuke the notion that being a producer is the only, um, the, the highest thing of being an artist. I think it's equal, yeah. but I, and, and I want to make sure that, um, that my art is the thing that keeps, um, that keeps me on my toes. Do they take you a long time to write? I mean, are you, are you fast, slow, or thoughtful? Um, uh, it gets harder as one gets older. It gets a bit slower. Having said that, I had four days off on the bank holiday the other day. I was really pleased. I wrote a play in those four days. Yeah. Um, uh, my family or no one saw me for those four <laughs> days. But I realised that... Um, actually, it was a TV script. It wasn't right. a play. And, and I realised that I had four days off. I didn't know. I went, bank holiday. Oh, my God. I don't have to go into the office for four days. What can I do? And so I kind of smashed in. Yeah. And, I, and it may be totally terrible. I haven't read it back yet for fear that I was just kind of typing rather than writing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I think a play takes me about three weeks to write, right. the first draft. And one of the things you did in Baltimore was that you had these... Um, you, you, you specifically had plays that you um, commissioned, very quick plays, that reacted to current events. They were five-minute plays, weren't yes. they? Is that something that you might be interested in doing here? I think we have. I think we did a, a series in America called, as you've said, called My America, which was, I landed, I said, I don't know this country. Who do I trust to tell me about this country? Um, playwrights, go write, the pl go write me plays, and then we'll film those plays and put them out on, uh, and, and put them out on our website. And they, were, they, were, they went very well. My America 1 um, became a feature film, and My America 2, which I, I, we later called Rapid Response Theatre, that we just captured digitally, um, became one of the most profound moments of, of my life. And so when I landed here, um, I, I, did, I, I, I looked around when I came back home. I looked around and I went, the country has changed since I've left it. And what's, what, what has happened? And I had a hunch that we had a, um, an identity crisis in England in particular, that when we, we were in denial about mm. our identity mm. crisis. And so I went out to 14 playwrights and I said, write me a play about your England. And we recorded them, the um, film, my yeah. England, and, and then we had a town hall about English identity. What was really interesting was that part of the reason that I did that was because I, I, I looked around and I felt that the far right had weaponized um, identity or English identity. And as a progressive, I think I can feel national pride and, as, well as, um, as well as want to have my, my politics change the world or change the environment. Um, what was really interesting with my England is, um, is that the far right really responded yeah, to it and rather violently. And um, I had to increase security at the Young Vic. This was maybe a month ago because they, um, they were literally, they took a couple of the films, they edited them and they put it out on the far right websites and said, look at this, look at these um, elite lefties that are, that are, um, that are um, 
that, and the films didn't do this at all, but that, that are denigrating our country. And they, we started getting hate calls and threats, bomb threats. Gosh. Um, and, and in a way, um, that though in terms of duty of care of my staff, it's very, and our staff, it's very, that's very painful. But in a way, it meant that we poked the right spot. Right. That actually, that, that, we, that we asked the question, can we be in the middle and be proud of being English? And the far right was saying, no, it's our domain. And, and I rebuked that. How much do you feel that theatre has to be concerned with sort of social justice and um, the current, current politics? I, I think that, um, I think we're part of the fourth estate. I think our, our, our job is to, is, is to look, see, hold a mirror up, ask our audiences if they're happy with who they are, what they are, the state of their country, the state of their communities, the state of their hearts. Um, um, I, I think we're supposed to do that. I don't think it's all we're supposed to do. I, 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 I like to think of a theatre as a palace of entertainment, but also as a town hall, as a, as a civic centre, as a place where I can go to rest my bones and my mind, and I can trust almost in the way in the 19th century you would go into a church and receive a sermon, but actually the sermon wasn't really the thing. It was that actually that you were in a congregation of people who wanted to pray and think and reflect and then have some guidance. I think that is, our, that is the space. But that doesn't mean that it has to be heavy and, and, and dogmatic. Theatre for me is a place of fun and joy. And, and the, the politicians that I like the best are actually the politicians that have that little twinkle in their eye. You know, Tony Benn, for instance. His politics was beautiful and radical for me. And he always, while well, he was challenging the status, got a little twinkle in his eye that kind of said, actually, I'm doing the thing that I'm supposed to be doing. Mm. Malcolm X, well, Malcolm X stood and spoke about structural inequality and, the ch and how to change it. He enjoyed knowing that he was catalyzing debate. I think that's what theatre is. How can you, from, you know, if you like, a, a small theatre on, on the South Bank of London, how... Do you, how do you go about kind of extending that debate and how do you go about making people who might not necessarily want to go to the theatre, who've got no cultural tradition of going to the theatre, how do you get them to come and at least look at what you're putting on and what you're talking about? I, 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 I think if I had the solution to that, uh, I'd be running the world. Um, uh, but, I, I, but, but I think there are some stabs in the dark. I've inherited a theatre that cares about its community and so it sends out the message to the community, you're welcome here, whatever class you, you're, you're from. I think the work that we put on our stages and, and, and the messages that we send have to kind of say, there's the optics of this theatre now that it's run under someone of colour, but also um, the work that we're putting on our stages and the subject that we're talking about means that you might just find this of interest. And then the other thing is, and a friend of mine said this to me the other day, he said, actually, when my family, who have no theatre tradition, go to the theatre, it's because they're going to see something invariably in the West End, because it's been marketed in such a way mm. that makes you think, oh, I want to see that. Not, oh, this is the 15,000 version of A Midsummer Night's Dream, and isn't it clever in this interpretation of it? No, actually, that here is a play that you want to see, that you want to engage in. So from marketing, to, um, to producing, 
I think one has to try and send, send the signals that we are open to anyone. And then you structure your tickets, right? You get your ticket prices so it's not prohibitive. At the Young Vic, I'm terribly proud of Inherited Theatre that gives away 10% of its tickets yeah. to people. And, and, and when I arrived, we introduced the five pounds first preview. If you've never been to the theatre before, you're coming in for a fiver. How many come in, actually many have, is secondary to sending the signal that if you want to, we are here. Right. Because that's the other interesting thing about your own background is that your, your um, sort of barriers were not only of um, uh, colour but also of class. I yes. mean, that, that's, and in the air, that, that's the greatest barrier at some levels to people going to the theatres, do you think? Or? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I, I think it's always... A sense that it's not for you. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think class is a very, very, very huge thing and, and also we, we often conflate race and class, right? Um, and, um, and I think, I, I think that, yes, I'll never forget, actually, I was, I can't remember where, what it was, and I can't remember where I was in my career, but I'm, I went for a meeting in, at BAFTA, I'm sorry to name and shame, and not to shame, and not, not the organisation, and I remember walking in, walking down Piccadilly, and all of our grand architecture that's here, and I'm a working class boy from Southall, and I'm, I'm, I'm walking in and all of the plush velvet. And the person on reception at the time looked at me and spoke to me and used a tone that was so condescending that, that I felt inferior on the spot. I felt as if I didn't belong. And that was a mixture of race and class. And it just happened that I had a meeting, so I had to overcome it. But if I were to try and buy a ticket, in that, yeah. I, would have, I would have turned away. I remember another time at the National, and this was actually just before my first play was on at the National Theatre. And this was not a sin of commission, this was a sin of omission. And I sat with my wife, and a rather wonderful woman, I would describe in probably her 80s, um, leant over to me and she said, how wonderful that you're here. <laughs> I said, thanks. Do you come often or is this your first time? <laughs> and, um, and my wife um, kind of slightly, I could see her bristling. And I went, no, I've never been to the theatre before. <laughs> this is, oh my God, what happens here? And, and, I go, and, and when, the, when, when the curtain goes up, I mean, what, what do I, and I literally just had that conversation for about five minutes. And she was really lovely. She kept saying, so try not to, um, to eat any sweets while you're in. And, and sometimes when the star comes in, you can applaud them, but, but we really don't do that here. We do that in America very much. And, 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 and then at the end, if you wish, and she literally took me through. And I was like, what the f and, <laughs> and my wife kept poking me, go, don't do that, don't do it. Tell her who you are. Um, but I, I think we are no longer in that era. Right. Do you, but that was, that was, that was an orthodoxy, that, that both my race and my class, um, senses of, of, of imposed inferiority, mm. that, that it, it brought those things up. And then I had to fight them, and I had to look at myself and say, um, and I say this to my children, walk into any environment with a sense of equality. But the moment someone tests your equality, revert to superiority. 
Yeah. And that's my life. I work, everybody is equal. But if you test, if you try to place me in, in, in an inferior position, and then I will let you know who I am. Do you think it is changing, particularly in theatre? I mean, there, there does seem to be, for me watching, there is this great sort of generation coming through of, uh, of black theatre makers, writers, producers, actors. I mean, it's an incredibly sort of, it feels like a rich time to me. I, 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 think, it's, I think it's a wonderful time. Um, and, and interesting how, um, how things uh, can just change on a dime. When I got the job at the Young Vic, I went to all of the artistic directors and I said, I'm really confused. Um, I, I see no new black playwrights in Britain. No playwrights of colour, what's going on? And they all said, look, we're really working hard and we're really trying. And then all of a sudden, Misty comes out. All of a sudden, Nine Night comes out. And it changed. And the, the oxygen changed. It's changed in the last um, year. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty fantastic to be, to be here when I can actually see the change. Yeah. And in the light of all of that, why, I think the one thing people were really surprised about, I can show you a picture, was that you started with Twelfth Night. Okay. Yes. Oh, it's not gonna work. It's all right. We all know the there playwright. There you are. There you are. But it was very different, Twelfth Night. So why did you want to start your time with Shakespeare? Um, you know, which is like, yeah, I, I, I think for a couple of reasons. I remember at, the, at the, my press launch, um, the second play up was The Convert, a, a big, a, you know, kind of Chekhovian-like play about um, then Rhodesia. And I remember someone in the press said, oh, but I would have expected you to direct that, Kwame. And I went, that's exactly why I'm doing Twelfth Night. Because right. I refuse to be placed in a box. Right. I refuse to be defined by anybody else's expectation of me. But also, for me, I didn't do Shakespeare when I was in England because I associated it with the status quo. But when I went to America, I, I saw how, how they had taken it and made it their own. And that Joe, Joe Papp, who was the originator of the, of the public theater, um, up until Joe Papp, when Americans did Shakespeare, up to the 50s, they all tried to kind of mock English accent. And Joe said, no, let's make it ours, it's American. We're, we're, it's part of our European tradition. And I saw how they decolonized it. And there was something about seeing a decolonization of something that belongs to me as an Englishman in another environment that said, oh, I can play with that. And so when I started to do Shakespeare, um, Twelfth Night, we put it to a soulful, kind of funky soundtrack and made it diverse and brought in a, an ensemble of 50. And in the States when I did it, we had an ensemble of 200 and of people who, from all classes, who didn't necessarily know that they belonged on a stage. And there we were putting Shakespeare to funk and soul with a community ensemble of 200 mm. and filling Central Park with joy and sound. And so that's why I wanted to start off with Twelfth Night. I wanted to say to those who didn't really know me as a director when I left, but knew me as a playwright, to say this is what I've learned in America. To say, um, I wish my reign to be filled with fun, music and joy. And I wish to make it look like London. And if you want my T-shirt with what's written, you know, then Twelfth Night and with its color with its sense of self and with its sense of, um, of, of being uniquely English but yet of the world. Um, th there it is. 
And it certainly had a lovely reaction in the theatre, that people were smiling, which is kind of always a nice way to start. Thank you. Uh, Kwame, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, have a look at what else is coming up in our brand new lecture theatre at roy.ac forward slash what's on.